Hello. Thank you for listening to the Avenue GCLC podcast. My name is Christopher Stevens, and I'm the minister at the Avenue G Church of Christ, where we are people of more. We hope that you enjoy and have enjoyed listening to this podcast, where you can find sermons, congregational singing, and talk shows with myself and youth minister Joshua Williams. We pray that the content is a blessing to you, and we hope that everyone listening can join us in person for worship and Bible class. We are located at 601 West Avenue G, Temple, Texas, 76504. And don't forget to visit us online at avegcoc.org. From the people of Moore to you, thank you and God bless. All right, so what we see there in that video from Men in Black is that he, when he became an agent, he received this this little bitty gun called the Noisy Cricket, he didn't expect much from it. He expected for it to be weak in power. Uh, he did not expect the kickback that he got from the gun. But it was very powerful. And that's what we're talking about in this lesson on this evening is, is the power of the king. Uh, Jesus, who came in the form of a man, would not have looked as though he had the power that he does. But Paul here, in his letter to the Ephesus church, he writes in chapter 1 uh, about the power of Jesus. Uh, he's continuing his prayer at this point. Uh, he's explaining to them that they, have, uh, they still have power through Jesus Christ. Where in the world is So last week we talked about power. We talked about some of the things that we've experienced that were uh, unexpectedly powerful. Some of those things mentioned on last week were what? What's, what's some things that you guys talked about last week that was unexpectedly powerful? You thought it was something weak, and then it turned out to be something powerful. This is y'all stuff. This ain't nothing I said. Huh? Anger? What'd you say, Sister uh, Woodard? You said Hulk. Oh, I said Hulk. That would be a good example, though. Starts off as a little man, turns into a monster, right? Prayer. Yeah. Doesn't seem like your words to God would be powerful, but they are. What are some other things? Okay. Passion for someone or something. What else? Hatred, yeah. Under the influence of the spirit, okay. Any kind of spirit, right? All right, so as we started off in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 15 through 23, uh, Paul here is talking about the uh, power. Uh, certainly in social civic terms, the city was powerful. We all understand that the city of Ephesus would have been much like um, 
a uh, New Orleans, maybe, or a New York, or a uh, San Francisco town that's on a bay, right? A lot of things coming in, a lot of money going in and out of Ephesus. So it was based on power. And it also had a lot of different uh, cultures coming together, merging together, and a lot of those things started to mix together. Paul here uh, first tells them about what they have in God, and then he's going to set them uh, on the correct course here later. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, we're going to look at some key words, and you guys took great notes last week, so I know you guys are going to tell me some things about these words that we're going to ask about here. So Paul starts off by saying, for this reason, because I have, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, so that first word that we talked about was love, right? That word love in verse number 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. What does that word mean? Agape love, unconditional love. This is this love that you choose to give to someone even though you may not get something back, right? He's saying, good job on showing love towards each other. This is a church. This is a congregation that he's speaking to. He's telling them, you've been doing a great job in showing this type of love towards each other, right? There may have been somebody in need there. They needed a robe, right, or a shirt, and someone might have took from their last of robes and gave them their best, right? This is agape love. Then he talked about who they were showing love towards. They were talk- they're showing love towards who? The saints, right? Now, what was special about that word? Mm-hmm. Keep going. For God's purpose. So saints are people who have been called out by God for purpose. That means that you are a Christian. That means that God has taken you away from the life of sin and said, now you are about my purpose. And we're going to learn about this in later chapters, what God's purpose is for all of us, right? Because we all have a purpose. None of us are just here because we're here, right? God has a purpose for each and every one of us. And we're going to find out what that is. Uh, Verse number 16, the Bible says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, when Paul says remembering here, uh, in the original language, this word remembering doesn't look like what it looks like in English. In Greek, what does that word remembering mean? We talked about that. To, it's two things. It's a word that means two things. Uh-huh. To, it's both, though. To make mention of and what? No. Mm-mm. When Paul says, huh? No. That word means to remember and make mention of, right? It's not just, that word in the original language doesn't just mean remember. It means to remember and make mention of. And I'll give you an example of what I'm saying here. You see somebody and they're down and out. They're having a bad day. And then all of a sudden they say, could you please pray for me? And then you say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And you don't pray for them. You just remember that they asked you to pray for them, right? Paul says, I'm going to go a step further than that, and I'm going to not only remember you, 
but I'm also going to make mention of you to God. Okay? That's what that word there is saying. So he says, I remembered you and I mentioned you to God in my prayers. And that word for prayers there is supplications. Um, he's asking God for a request on their behalf. Verse number 17. And this is his prayer. Okay? This is Paul's prayer for the people at Ephesus. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's a whole lot that he's saying in a fractured sentence. The first part that we want to tackle, though, uh, we need to understand words, right, because they're important. They mean something. Uh, what does Lord? Huh? What does Lord mean? Hmm? There you go. Someone who has authority over you. So Jesus should be someone who has authority over you if you're a Christian, right? Uh, it also, it gives Jesus two titles here. It calls him Lord and it also calls him what? No. Christ. Uh-huh. Christ. Now that word Christ, what does that word mean? We talked about that. Anointed. And that means he is also set apart for a purpose, right? And then he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, we talked about that word glory. What does the word glory mean? Splendid and marvelous, something amazing, right? Think about the most audacious, beautiful thing that you could think of. That's glory. But God's glory is even more special than that is, right? Some of you may be thinking about a nice fancy car, or a big diamond ring, God has more glory than those things, right? But he says that God is the father of glory, right? We know the father of soul is, right? James. Yeah, James Brown. So God, he, he, he is glory epitomized. He is glory, okay? says the father of glory may give you the spirit. We talked about spirit last week. Huh? There we go. Influence. The influence of wisdom, right? What does wisdom mean? Did y'all write that down? Knowledge. Application of knowledge. Or you can word it some other way, but yeah. It's taking what you know and putting it into practice, okay? And then it says, and, he's, keep, he's still praying for him. He says, and of revelation, right? What does revelation mean? To make known, to make clear, right? To make crystal clear. He wants something to be made clear to them. And what he wants to be made clear to them is what? The knowledge, not just knowledge, but what? Knowledge of him, right? Knowledge of him. He wants them to know clearly who God is, right? We can't do what God wants us to do if we don't know who he is. I don't know if we made it this far. Did we make it to 18? We made it to 19? Oh, okay. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He goes on and says, I also pray that the eyes of your heart, now, does our heart have eyes? He's talking about understanding, right? 
He's talking about that you may see clearly and understand, right? Enlighten. We talked about that word. To make clear, to understand, yeah? That you may know what is the hope. That was a big word we talked about last week. What does hope mean? An expected outcome. I know God has done this for me. God has forgiven me of my sins. God has saved me from hell. I know that he'll save me again. That's hope. It's an expected outcome based on what we have seen before, what we know God to be. Okay? That's what hope is when you look at biblical terms. That's what that word means. Uh, The hope to which he has called you. Now, he's saying right here that God has hope. God has an expectation for you and I and all of those Christians who are at Ephesus. That's what he's saying right there. He says we, he's praying for them that they may know what God expects of them as they are called. Okay? God doesn't call out to us in dreams or in clouds or over the cell phone. But the way that God calls us, he calls us through his word. We read of his word and we see the sacrifice that his son Jesus has uh, made for each and every one of us. And we are obedient to that. And, and we obey the gospel. And we're baptized for the remission of our sins. But that's not all that we're called to do. We're not called to just be saved people. It'd be pointless if we just, okay, I'm saved. Forget about everybody else. Right? That'd be pointless. That'd be a waste. We're called to do more. Right? That sounds familiar, right? Avon got it. <laughs> people of more, y'all. Learn more, love more, do more, teach more, okay? Um, it says he has called you, and then he also wants them to be enlightened about what? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, he says God is rich. God, in the verses 1 through 14, he talks about how God uh, pours out these riches of, of, of kindness to us. It says that God has riches of glorious, splendid, marvelous, excellent inheritance. What does inheritance mean? We talked about that. Down. Something that's passed down. Well, don't go there yet. We, we almost there. Somebody after someone dies. Something that's passed down after somebody dies. Now, if God has something for us, which is an inheritance, and we don't get it until someone dies, who was the somebody that died that gave us an inheritance? There we go. And then that inheritance is what? Salvation. Okay? And it says that it is in who? It's in the saints. It's in the people who are believers and followers of God. Now, I know that each one of us uh, has a Bible that we can point to people to read it. Each one of us has the Bible uh, uh, maybe on our phones or paper copies. I want you to realize that the inheritance that God has for the whole world lies within you, lies within your heart because you have seen it. You have been enlightened of what the gospel is. It's not enough for us to just give someone a Bible and say, here, right? We live it. 
We teach it. We do it, right? And speak it also. That's our jobs. That's what we've been called to do, okay? And then I'll just, wait, you said we got to 19 last time? Okay. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind? He says, um, we also, he praying that they also would learn about what is the immeasurable. Now, did we talk about that word last time? Unmeasurable. Yeah. It, we don't have anything that can measure it. We don't have a measuring tape long enough. We don't have a yardstick long enough. We don't have whatever they use to measure long distances. I don't know what the, the utilities they use to do that. We don't have anything long enough, tall enough, wide enough, deep enough to measure the greatness of the power that God has toward us who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. God has given all of us power, right? We have access to this power, right? The Greek uh, word that they use for this power here is dunamis. That's what it looks, and it looks exactly like the word in English that we have for dynamite. So in your Bible, you, will you see that greatness right there? Right? Dynamite right there. God is powerful, powerful, right? Able to act just like that, that power that's sudden, quick, able to change, right? And then whenever it mentions that second uh, uh, thing right there where it says power, it's talking about Kratos, right? That sounds like that video game character from God of War. That's where that name comes from right? Kratos is able to uh, control or take over many things. Let's see here. Kratos is the power to rule or control, right? God has given us the power, right? According to the working of his great mind, okay? And you say that's, that's where we are, right? Okay, let me skip through this. So did we answer this question? According to Paul's prayer, we acquire wisdom as we get to know God. How does knowing Jesus more help us see things differently? Hmm? By the way you suffered? Okay. How do you see things differently based on him suffering? Do y'all remember what I told y'all to read last week when we left? The Philippian hymn. Did anybody look that up? Philippian hymn. Yeah. So turn your Bibles over. If you have your, other, your big Bible with you, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read for a moment here, verses 1 through 11. This is another um, letter that Paul writes to, to a church. They're in a city called uh, Philippi. That's why it's called Philippians. It's written to the people who reside there. And um, this is a normal letter just like Paul usually writes, but something is different about this. Right smack dab at the beginning of his letter Paul decides to include a song, okay? Um, so if you want, you can write that down in your Bible, that this is a song. Philippians chapter 2, 
And we're going to start at verse number one. The song starts about uh, verse number uh, six. So I'm going to start at verse number one. I'm reading from the ESV version. Listen to this. And he's talking about, and, and I want you to know this from this book right here. Paul mentions the mind more times than any other book in the New Testament in this book. He mentions the mind and how we think, the think, our thinking process, more in the book of Philippians than he does than anywhere in the New Testament. So this is important. He's telling us how our mind is supposed to be here. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He says, make me happy by doing this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. That means loving each other. Being in full accord and of one mind. That means having unity among each other, right? And that's what's so important about what we're about to do on Sunday. Don't, don't show up here, y'all, Sunday. We're going to go somewhere else and we're going to worship Sunday, all right? Western Hills Church of Christ. If you need the address, I have it up here um, for y'all. If you want to hand out some of these to your friends and invite them to come worship on Sunday, take some of these and give it to them as a dress on here. But what's so important about this, we're doing something, again, that we have not done in the past, and we're showing unity among believers of Christ, right? That's, that's, that's something that's different. Verse number three, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What if as a country... We always thought about other people as being more important than us. What kind of country would we have? What kind of city would we have if we looked at other people and said, you know what? Their needs is more important than my needs. They're more important than what I am. I'm second. They're first. This is the type of mind that Paul is telling us that we need to have. What if we had a church like that to where your brothers and sisters looked at you and said, you're more important than me? This is the type of mind that Paul says we should have. He says, um, verse number four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's talking about what Jesus' mind was like. He says, you need to think like Jesus thought. And here's how Jesus thought. Verse number six said, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being uh, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul here says a mouthful, and he talks about the mind of Jesus Christ and how he actually went from being glorious and being magnificent and actually transformed himself and stripped himself of that glory just so he can put the needs of us first. And because he did that, because he put the needs of others first, he didn't have to lift himself because what God does is if you put the needs of others 
and the interests of others first, God will then lift you up. Right? That's exactly what Jesus did. And he not only just lifted him up as, as far as a reputation, but he lifted him up from the dead. And that's what will happen for all of us if we have this mind. Okay? Let's go back to this right here. So I think that ties in perfectly with how does knowing Jesus more help us to see things differently. When we know Jesus and we know why he did what he did, then it's possible for us to say, okay, now since I know why Jesus did what he did, I can start putting it into practice too. I can start looking at other people and saying, you know what? I know that I want A, B, and C, but A, B, and C is going to make this other person's interest second. So I'm going to put their interest first. I want to make sure that what they're interested in is first. If you do that, if you do that, God will surely lift you up. If you do that, there's no confrontation between each other. Because if you're making sure that the interest of another person is lifted up, and they're making sure that your interests are lifting up, nobody's hurting for anything. You know? But if you seek to always get your way, that's when problems happen. That's whenever there's a tug of war going on. So what are some practical ways in which we can put others first? What are some practical ways in which we can have the mind of Jesus Christ? Helping others when they need help? Praying for an opportunity to help someone? What about feed my sheep? That's a, that's a practical method, right? What about having Bible studies with people? What about going and cutting somebody's grass who can't get out and cut their own grass? Yep, May 18th, we're doing that, right? What about giving somebody a ride to their doctor's appointments? Inviting them to church. Inviting them over to eat because you got a refrigerator full of food. Right? These are some things that we can do to put others before ourselves. Share some of that steak y'all got in the freezer. Right? You ain't got you got some steaks. <laughs> she ain't get you a steak for your birthday, brother boys. Oh, he need a steak for his birthday. All right, next question. What was the greatest display of power the world has ever seen? We're going to look at verse 20 to get the answer for that. The greatest display of power the world has ever seen. Huh? Raised from the dead. What else? Let's read that verse real quick. Someone read that real loud. Well, I'll read it. I'll read it. Uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Okay. There's two acts of power happening here. There you go. That's exactly right. Raised from the dead and sitting at the right hand of God. For some reason in their culture, to sit at the right hand of God means that you have power. Yeah, you got power. Maybe that's where that phrase right hand man came from. I don't know. Do they do that too? 
like have higher rank. So in the military, the the people who are on the right are the better. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> so yeah, there's two instances of power. So as you underline that on your Bible, sit at the right hand of God, underline and put power there. There's power there. That means Jesus has power that has been given to him by God. And if God is the one who set all of this in motion, this plan, and he's given Jesus the power, what can he do in your life? Or what can't he do in your life? Two displays of power. So somebody sitting to the right of general. Okay. I didn't know that. Now, there's something else that happens there. Avon, you mentioned um, that two instances of power happen. Um, one was that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. What is significant about that? What's so, why is there power in the fact that Jesus was raised? Okay. Why? The sting, the sting mhm, mm what about the sting of death? Avon mentioned it, y'all he said it, not me. What about the sting of death? doesn't have no power. The sting if a bee come in here and sting you, is it gonna hurt? Let's go to Romans 6. Uh, Romans 6, 23. One person get that. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Someone else get that. It's Romans 6, 23. And then you can write that down in your notes as well. And then um, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. All right, let's read the Romans one first. What does Romans 6, 23 say? The wages of sin is death. When you go to work and you clock in and you clock out, after 80 hours plus hours, after two weeks, you get what? You get a paycheck. That's your wages, right? The Bible here says that the wages of sin is death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So we deserve sin because or we deserve death because we sin. That's why we die. That's why Adam and Eve was cast out of the garden instead of being with God forever in access of the tree of life. They were kicked out to live and die and return to dust. All right. Uh, First Corinthians uh, fifteen fifty six. The sting of death is sin. Now listen to this. God allowed for sin to have power. Right? If not, people wouldn't die. But when Jesus died and had no sin, God said, now I'm taking it back. You cannot hold him and keep him dead because he has no sin. Mm -hmm. Who, Adam and Eve? We never see that they ate of the tree of life. They chose the tree that would make them to where they wouldn't have to be uh, rely on God instead of choosing the tree of life. Um, later on in uh, Revelation, I believe, let me see, I think Revelation, it talks about, let me see. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Yeah, the tree... Yeah, it wasn't just a tree of knowledge, because then they would have known not to cross God. It was a tree. <laughs> it was a tree of not. Well, it's it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the difference. And so, in essence, what they do is they say, okay, we don't want to rely on God to define what good and evil is for us. We want to be our own God to ourselves and and find out what good and evil is and define it for ourselves. We don't need God. Is what they told God by partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, it literally says that she was trying to be like God. Yeah, yeah. That's why she did it. That was her reason for taking the, uh, or taking a bite. Now, Adam's sin wasn't the fact that he was trying to be like God. It was that, that, that he didn't want to be in a position that God had given him to be the leader. So, he's, yeah, he was whipped. And, and I was trying to put it more proper than that. But, but he just wanted to please that good thing that he saw came from his rib. Okay. <clears throat> Let's see. Okay, so now don't take this. I don't know if we can take this literal or not. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 7. You know what? It does mention it in Genesis as well. Go ahead and get Revelations 2, 7, and then someone get um, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Hold up. Let me go back to there. Somebody hold their finger at Revelations 2, 7, because God starts off with this statement uh, in Genesis, and then he says he, he, he doesn't even end his sentence. It's back in Genesis chapter 3, verse number uh, 22. So Genesis 3, write this down if you need to. Genesis 3.22, it says, then the, this is after they had partaken of the tree. They eaten from the tree, 
And God says, we need to do something about this. And then he says in 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And he doesn't finish his sentence. It's almost like this thought of us living in sin forever without dying is just an unthinkable thought to God. He doesn't want to imagine a, 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 a reality to where we can't be in relationship with him. And so he says he has to do something. He has to punish them to kick them out so that they have a chance. Because if they stayed in there and eat of the tree of life and they're living in sin, they're not going to die. And they're going to be in opposition to God forever. And that means he's going to have to do something about it. And he didn't want to kill them or else he would have. So the tree of life does cause us to live forever. Revelations 2, 7 uh, talks of, go ahead, read that. He who has an ear, uh-huh. let him hear mm-hmm. what, the, what the Spirit says to the churches, to the, to the one who has conquered, who, con- who, conquer, I, who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in Okay. It talks about those who will be saved afterward, because in uh, Revelation is talking about those seven churches and how well some of them are doing and how some of them will make it to heaven. And it says in paradise of heaven or paradise of God, the tree of life is there and we'll be able to eat of that. Now, I don't know if that's a literal thing or if it's just saying you're going to live forever once you get to heaven. Um, but um, Genesis does confirm that if they would have taken a, a bite up from the tree of the life, then they could have lived forever. They chose death over life, essentially, uh, by doing that. So, okay. So, at the center of Paul's prayer for the church in the area, which he now reports is his longing, that they, be, that they will come to realize that this same power, the power seen at Easter, and we know that Easter means what? Mm-mm. The resurrection of Jesus, right? Now, traditionally, historically, Easter does not mean that, but whenever you see that a theologian talking about Easter, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, not the bunny and not the, um, not the fertility goddess either, okay? Yeah, because it comes from the fertility goddess. Have y'all heard about that uh, Easter? Um, it was this, it was this, um, this image. Uh, it looked like a woman, and she had... Now, I don't know if these are eggs. Well, the eggs were a symbol of fertility, and they would pray to this God to be fertile. Um, but it's either eggs or breasts all around this image of this woman, like all over this idol. Um, it's one of the two. But that's where we get a lot of the, the stuff that comes along with Easter. Okay? Um, they tied that into what we know of as the gospel story. So when you decorate your eggs, you know. All right. So, uh, seen at Easter and now vested in Jesus is available to them for their daily use. What he's saying there is that the power after Jesus rise from the dead is there for all of us every single day. We have access to this power. It's not just the day that you get saved or the day that you're baptized. It's not just the day before you die. You have access to this power every single day. Uh, Far too many Christians today, and one suspects in Paul's day, are quite unaware that this power is there and is available. 
They are like the character in Men in Black who is unaware of the power the noisy cricket has. Uh, Paul doesn't, oops, Paul doesn't imagine that all Christians will automatically be able to recognize the power of God. It will take, as he says in verse 17, a fresh gift of wisdom, of coming to see things people don't normally see. That's what's so important. That's what's so important. We, we put a lot of uh, stock into knowing things, into, into gaining a lot of knowledge, but we don't put it into practice. Putting the knowledge into practice is where actual change comes. That's where change comes, okay? Um, and this, in turn, will come about through knowing Jesus and having what Paul calls the yes of your innermost self, open to God's light. What should and shouldn't using this power look like in our daily lives? How can we use this power for good or, or bad? How can we use this power that God has through us and for us for good? I'll ask that first. Praying for others, telling others, by practicing it. What are some bad uses of this power? Not using it at all. Yeah, yeah, that's one. Uh huh. What else? Mm hmm. Want to talk about? It? Okay. What about using the word of God to condemn people? Yeah. That's been done. Changing it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Changing it. What else? That's it. That's good that you guys don't have ideas about that. That means you aren't using it in a bad way. All right. How have you uh, experienced this power in your life? How have you experienced the power of God in your life? Two responses. How have you experienced the power of God? Okay. Well, how has the power of God affected you? Or, or, or how have you seen it elsewhere in your life? You saw something, you're like, man, that, that is nothing but God. Positivity? Yeah, power positivity. The change in yourself. The change in yourself. Okay. All right, that's two responses. Okay. All right, so let's look at these words here. There's a couple of... Uh, oh, I missed a word. Verse number 20, I want you to underline raised. I want you to underline dead. I want you to underline right hand. We should have already underlined right hand. That means power. But raised just means to resurrect someone, okay? Dead means to be, it's the, it's the word in Greek called necros, and this means you're dead, kaput. Can't do nothing for yourself. Can't do anything for yourself, Right? And he said that he raised Christ from the dead. Jesus couldn't do anything for himself. He had died. But because of his obedience, because of him not sinning, God said, I'm going to raise him up. And when he did, he changed his circumstance. Okay? Verse number uh, 21, the Bible reads, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things where? Under his feet, right? That underline under his feet, that right there means subjection, okay? It says all things are under subjection to Jesus, right? The things that you struggle with, that you can't overcome, whether they be addiction, whether it be depression, whether it be loneliness, whether it be whatever, money problems, marriage problems, whatever it is that you're dealing with, the thing that you can't conquer in your life, can't stop talking about people, whatever it is in your life that you feel like you can't overcome, it's in subjection to Jesus. Jesus sits his feet on it, the things that we can't conquer. So wouldn't it make sense to allow him to be authority in our lives? It says also in verse number 20, or 21, that he is above all rule and authority. That means that his rule and authority is higher than what the president has. It's higher than what any a dictator has, or king, is higher than the power that your wife has. <laughs> he says, messy. <laughs> more power, right? He has more power and authority than anything. It says his name is what? No, am I skipping ahead? No, that's in 21. No, I said power and dominion. And, uh, and, uh, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So if somebody comes claiming to be the second Jesus and the name is Jethro, Jesus' name is power than, more powerful than that name. Because we know that the name of Jesus means what? Mm -mm. Remember? Come on now. That was like, it was only like eight, eight weeks ago. <laughs> God saves. I'm about to say, you got to know it because he wears the name. Jesus' name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, which we know of as Joshua, right? His name used to be Hosea, right? The Old Testament Joshua first name was Hosea, which means delivers or saves, right? Moses changed his names to Yahshua right? Yahweh saves. Jesus' name in Aramaic Hebrew is the same as Yeshua or Joshua. So his name literally means God saves. That's why his name is so powerful, right? Well, the actual, the actual name, the actual name uh, for Yahweh is not the actual name that they were given. It was actually lost. What they did was they, um, the name, the Hebrew letters for Yahweh is just the consonants. The vowels are gone because they did not want to speak the name of God. They said it was disrespectful. And so they would use Yahweh um, as a term. And Yahweh wasn't a thing until well later on. Um, but they would use terms like Adonai and, um, and Elohim and, and all these other, these other different names for. It's kind of like, have y'all seen Harry Potter? How they won't they won't say Voldemort's name? It's kind of like that. Okay, uh, we'll pick up. Well, no, we got five minutes. 
Okay. Huh? Exactly. Seriously. For real. They really did. They respected God's name so much that they would not speak it. Now, I don't know if somebody over in Jerusalem has it and they don't share it with anybody else, but they, did, they do not use the name of God. Mm-mm. Not at all. You know? Some, well, anyway. So King Jesus, as the head of the body of the believers, has the church as his hands and feet. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is called the head. Uh, the Greek term for this is kephale gonios. Uh, he is literally uh, the head of the body. The head of the body controls this. If you raise your hand, raise your hand up. Your brain is controlling that, right? You move your leg. Your, your, your head is controlling that. You blink without thinking about it. Your brain controls that. Jesus is the head of the body. We are his hands and feet. We go out and we change the lives of people in this city, in this state, in this country, in this world, right? By inviting them to know the love of Jesus Christ, right? How do we know how to move? We ask Jesus. How do we know how to act? We ask Jesus. How do we know what to speak? We ask Jesus, right? And how do we ask Jesus? Prayer and what? And reading the Bible. That's our communication. Communication is a two-way street. It's one person speaking, another person receiving, going back and forth. We speak to God, Jesus, through prayer. We receive the word through his word, okay? And others receive that because some people are not conversing with God right now. Did y'all know that? It is our job to intersect into their lives and start the conversation. That's what we've been called to do. Um, It is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. How can we, his church, act as his agents within the present world? How can we become parts of people's lives and fulfill being the hands and feet of Jesus? By sharing? Going out to teach? Did y'all realize, and I always say this, because discipleship is something that the church has failed to do. Um, what what I, I know of as the church, and it's changing a bit now, but what I know of from the church is we had transformed for a while into a group of people who would come together in a room, receive the word of God, and take the word of God to Golden Corral. And that's it. It didn't go any further than Golden Corral and Luby's. And that's what we were. We were like a country club, right? That's what it was. But what the goal here at Avenue G, I don't know what anybody else is doing, but the goal here at Avenue G is to take God's word, become friends with people, allow them into your life. That doesn't mean you need to have a Bible study with this person every time you meet with them. That means just, hey, I want you to be my friend. And when you need me, I'm going to give you God. Not me, but I'm going to give you God, not me. I'm not going to give you me. I'm going to give you God, and I'm going to guide you along the way. And when you have questions about salvation and when you have questions about your life, when you have questions about your children and your marriage, I'm going to tell you what God has to say about it. That's discipleship. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible. Just invite someone into your life and show them God through your actions and through your speech. That's it. That's what the church has to do, okay? 
This is something that I've, and, and the thing is, it does not become normal until you force it to be normal. It's just like when you start a diet, right? It's not normal, well, for a little bit, it's not normal for you not to have junk food and sweets and sodas and things, but you have to force yourself not to do those things, and then all of a sudden, guess what happens? It becomes normal, right? That's what we have to do with this discipleship thing. We have to force some things. You have to force yourself to love somebody and not expect anything to return. You have to force yourself to go out and sweat and, and volunteer and do things for people that they can't do for themselves, knowing that they may not ever talk to you or say thank yeah. you. You know? That's something that we have to force ourselves to do until it becomes natural because we want to make sure that we're putting other people's needs above our own. I remember I used to have this bracelet. I lost it, too. I am second. I had a bracelet that just said, I am second. So I could look down at that thing. You heard of that? You look down at that thing and you realize, you know, you get in tough situations where you have to deal with difficult people. I'm second. They may be going through something right now, and they need God. They, their needs need to be first right now, right? Um, I hope that the, yeah, that was perfect. This is the end. This is our prayer. Uh, write this down uh, in your notes or put it in your phone or something. And this is our prayer. Um, and we're going to do this collectively after you write it down. Or you can write it down afterwards. I'll keep it up on the screen. We'll do this collectively. We'll say this together, uh, all together, and we'll send this prayer up to God collectively. Dear God, Thank you for the power that you have given us through Jesus' resurrection. Please help me to use it in my everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen. Recognize the power that you have in God. Recognize that it's accessible to you, right? Don't live as though you're a second-rate citizen. You are a citizen of heaven. Okay? Any questions? <coughs> Lord willing, next time we meet, I don't know what date that is. Is that the first Wednesday of May? I don't know. No, next Wednesday. It's the first? 24? Okay, so we'll, have, we'll be covering chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is what we're going to be covering next. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Okay, a couple of announcements before we get out of here. I need for all teachers to check your email.